Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Got my first Sox math win in a long time this weekend. The haters the haters have some problems going into this week. I, I am very, very happy about where I'm at with that right now. Other than that, beautiful in Chicago. Can't complain right now. Yeah, weather's been great. The baseball I've been watching has been really hit or miss. Feels like the team can either pitch well or score a lot, but not both at the same time. So hopefully that gets sorted out. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely an issue we ran into last year, but uh, it's nice to see this team score runs, isn't it? Like it's just like seeing runs put on the board, even when you're bad or even when you're sitting at five and six, you feel a little bit better about it when uh, you have an exciting offense. Uh, Jordan has definitely made an enemy of White Sox Twitter, uh, but anyway, we have quite a bit to cover in that up in the episode, as we will cover a little bit of that. But before we get started. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out Socks on 35th at SocksOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SocksOn35th. All right, gentlemen, so we have to get everything out of the way right off the bat. Uh, the obvious elephant in the room. Every year we deal with the injury bug a little bit differently. Um, you know, sometimes we get hit with it early. Sometimes we get hit with it a little bit later. Um, serious, you know, non-serious. Sometimes guys getting scuffed up. It's a little bit different. Um, early on, we have Aloy Jimenez and Joe Kelly hitting the IL. Um, two guys that you really, you know, you really want to see have a bounce back type of season. Um, we were also seeing guys like Yoan Mankata and Tim Anderson getting a little scuffed up out there. Um, we don't know what the long-term outlook is for Mankata and Anderson. We do know do kind of have a timeline on Aloy and Joe Kelly, um, as unfortunate as it might be. We'll probably end up seeing them a little bit more towards May. Uh, but how are we feeling about uh, the health of this team moving forward? Is this something we should be concerned about? Um, Nick, I'll let you go ahead and start on the top of this. Um, you know, Yoan Mankata, a guy who's been really hot. Um, is this something with his injuries, with him sitting out against the Twins for the first game, is this something we should be worried about? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely annoying in the short term. I think just because we're so used right now to seeing the White Sox lineup. I mean, we were so used to it last week and seeing it actually resemble the full-strength team, which is something you couldn't really say last year. So before we could even get too used to it, now, of course, people are dropping like flies. And it does happen. I mean, look at the Twins lineup from earlier today, Monday's game uh, against the White Sox. I mean, they had like three of their actual starters in the game and everyone else was injured. So it, it's ha- it happens. Um, as for Moncada, I think that when you're dealing with a back injury, especially, it's the same one he had in spring training, and back injuries very rarely go away as easily as, as other injuries. So I think the fact that it's flaring up is ideally not not that big of a problem long-term. I think that as long as he rests, maybe he'll miss the whole Minnesota series, maybe not. But either way, I think that it probably won't be some sort of thing where he's missing like a month unless he pushes too hard. I think that Andrew Vaughn also had a back injury in spring training, so I wouldn't be surprised if he has a flare-up in the coming weeks just because by nature it's a back injury. That's what happens. So overall, I'm I'm concerned, but not too concerned because I just think as a White Sox fan, whenever somebody gets injured, our default state is concerned, and that's totally understandable. But at the same time, I'm not sure that anything is too long-term for any of our players right now, and that's a good thing. Yeah, the fact that it's not long-term is kind of the big key. But also, for me... 
the issue is that two of these four injuries were incredibly preventable. Joe Kelly's was sustained during the melee, whatever you want to call it, with Pittsburgh um, on Sunday. That was wholly unnecessary. And Anderson's occurred on a play that I would yell at a Little League team for displaying in terms of defense. That was horrendous today, and I, the most frustrating part of it is not that you know it costs a pitcher extra pitches, it's that it costs a guy potentially games, especially someone as important as Tim Anderson. I think that's probably more frustrating than anything else. Nick, like you said, they're shorter term, but two of them were very preventable. Um, and for a team that tends to have struggles with injuries that maybe are less preventable, it's frustrating to have them um, down on out of the count um, like this. Um, Joe Kelly, that's that's kind of the thing with Joe Kelly, I think, right off the bat that I thought when I first saw that he would be going to the IL was, um, is this a matter of usage? Because... Um, I, I don't know about anybody else, but when we were absolutely destroying the Pittsburgh Pirates on Saturday, um, I was a little bit wondering, I was a little bit confused on some of the decisions we were making out of the bullpen. You know, I understand wanting to get guys up and, you know, get them throwing and stuff like that. But when you have a game in lock and you have a situation where we already are down our closer, um, I don't know necessarily how much I want to toss our high leverage guys into those situations. And Joe Kelly is somebody who I consider with the way our bullpen set up is really a higher leverage guy. You know, he's somebody that's going to need to be, he is that type of stuff. Um, so that was my first thought. And then you end up hearing that he tweaked his groin running out of the bullpen, you know, basically to stop Michael Kopech from killing somebody. So, um, it was, uh, that's, it's just something you kind of have to shake your head at, but, Luckily, there's nothing serious here. Even the Aloy injury with the hamstring, hopefully, you know, you know, I said early May because I always like to just give a little bit of tentative time, you know, depending on what they want to do for rehab assignments or anything like that. But hopefully Aloy is back sooner rather than later. Um, his expected time right now is about April 19th, uh, Joe Kelly being April 24th. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on. But, yeah, um, you really don't want to see Tim and Yoan go down with anything serious because of uh, just how well they've been playing. You know, that, that's, that's just kind of the short and long of it. And um, I, I'm with you, Jordan. A lot of a lot of very preventable, preventable stuff here. But, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, it's early on in the season. Everybody's still getting their feet under them. Some guys played a little bit more baseball than others, whether they were playing uh, actually – three of these guys were playing in the world baseball classic. So, you know, maybe that has something to do with it as well. You know, that's, that's just kind of the nature of it. Um, but yeah, I guess besides all that, besides the injuries, um, there is, there's gotta be some good, some bad and ugly. Obviously we're sitting under just under 500. Um, not nearly as negative as I would feel most White Sox fans would be at this point in the season with us being under 500. Usually the sky is falling at this point for some people it is, but I see a ball club that is scoring a lot of runs, um, a starting rotation that is struggling. But um, how how are you guys feeling about it? What are, what are some things, uh, Nick, because I'll let you start the next point. I'll let Jordan take this one. What are some things that are just looking really good for the White Sox right now for you? I think the offense looks awesome right now. I think hit or miss some days. I You look through the first 11 games, they've really had just one bad game. Um some really strong plate approaches overall. I think Tim Anderson's one who stands out in terms of his chase rate way down um, from not only last season, but his career numbers that that's important for a guy. You want to be your leadoff hitter for someone who you want to set the table to show that sort of growth at this point in his career. That's incredibly important. Um, beyond that, one guy I do want to highlight um, 
both for the offense that he's provided so far, and, and I think he's not getting talked about enough. Steve Stone mentioned him a bit on the pod, or excuse me, on the um, broadcast on Monday. Yes, Monte Grandal tied for sixth in blocking runs, which is a new stat for baseball savant. Um, so he is up towards the top of the league in terms of blocking runs. Framing runs, he's also four runs positive. He looks good behind the plate. And I think he got some crap early on for a couple pass balls here or there that were tough in-betweeners. Um, but overall, he's looked really good. And I think, you know, you can talk about the offensive approaches um, and things like that. But at the same time, it, he looks good behind the plate. And I think that's important to highlight because I don't think he's gotten much um, in the way of much positivity so far, especially from the defense. Yeah, Grandal looks good behind the plate, and he also looks good at the plate. I think it's something people aren't really talking about. He's taking walks again. He's hitting for power, not quite. I mean, he had one home run, but he's hitting the ball hard, which last year his best contact was like, anecdotally, like he hit like a 95-mile-per-hour line drive once in a while. But now he's consistently back hitting, you know, 100-plus-mile-per-hour doubles and ladders, and that's that's really nice to see. So overall, I agree with you. I think the offense is doing very well and um, I like that you mentioned Grandal. I was I was going to if you didn't just because he's the one no one's really talking about I mean Moncada Robert Anderson those are like the main three who got off to really hot starts and they're rightfully getting their due but I think Grandal, even Andrew Vaughn a little bit I like the patience he's showing he's getting on base a lot which is nice to see and I think it's only a matter matter of time before the power starts coming too so yeah in terms of positives that's definitely the offense is the main thing and the last thing I'll add there is base running I think that the fact they haven't been thrown out stealing a base yet is just really neat because they didn't even steal that much last year. And the fact that they're doing it a lot more this year, but also doing it so efficiently is really impressive. One thing on Grandal, too, I actually found interesting. He's running a 400 BABIP right now. So obviously this is unsustainable. The fact that he's hitting 300 is unsustainable. And at the same time, his career number is 275, and that's with the shift. I'm very curious. I think Grandel and there are good cases around the league, but I think he's a good White Sox case study in terms of what the shift restrictions or shift ban, whatever you want to call it, what that's really going to do to players who have been heavily impacted by the shift. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see where that number ends up. It's not going to be 400, but I don't think it will be 275 either. I think it'll find somewhere in between. I think that'd be really interesting to uh, look at, at the end of the season. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm i glad you brought up uh, the point that Steve Stone brought up because I was actually listening to the radio broadcast today um, with Len Casper and DJ, and they were talking about Grandal for quite a bit. And one of the things they noticed, um, just kind of looking outside of the numbers and just kind of doing a little bit of the eye test, um, is Grandal just is a lot more aggressive at the plate. And um, him swinging at pitches, maybe he wouldn't swing at in the past because he was more willing to take a ball. Whereas a ball that's maybe kind of hovering around the corner that's still in his wheelhouse, he's starting to swing at those just a little bit more with great success. And it's opening up what he can really do with kind of his sweet, like the kind of, kind of his range of motion when swinging, I guess. I guess that's kind of the, like the hot spot in his zone, I guess is the best way I could put it. But I think that, I think there's really something to that because I've seen a much more aggressive approach from Grandal at the plate. And I think it's really it's paid off so far. It really has, you know, he's, he's showing the natural power that he's always had. Um, and I think while there is a benefit and, you know, obviously Jordan, you've built an entire persona about the benefit of Yasmani taking walks, but I do think there is, there is something to be said about him potentially taking less walks 
and having more opportunities to showcase his power, especially when he doesn't have a shift that he has to worry about. And I think that's why we're seeing him get these doubles and hard hit balls to the gaps because, you know, he's just, he's taking a shot at it. You know, he, he understands his value as taking walks, but he also understands his value as being a power presence in the lineup, especially as a switch hitter. And um, I thought Casper and DJ made a great point out of that today. They overall, they, that was the first radio broadcast I heard from this year. Incredible stuff as always, as, as is expected. Um, I guess kind of going to my next positive, Jordan, I really hate to stick it to you here, buddy, but, um, that Luis Robert take about him potentially batting seventh in the lineup. I don't know if that's going to be in the cards after, uh, after the week that Luis Robert has had. And I, I, I'm not going to say it's almost directly aligned with the second you had that take, but it's certainly been quite the run for Luis Robert since you made that take, but it wasn't. If you listen to, and I got hosed on social media because the the whole podcast was not played. And that's just the, the nature of social media being in a position where people are listening to your stuff. It's going to be, there can be some 30 second bad sound bites. Uh, and that was certainly one of them. My whole point was that he looked terrible in the Houston series. And I said, if this is going to continue, I am not comfortable putting him at the top of the lineup. Personally, this hot week didn't change much for me in in terms of how I feel about Luis Robert. I think you still see it in Pittsburgh. There's an at-bat, I think it was late in um, Sunday's game, or maybe it was late in Saturday's game. Our pitcher throws two sliders off the plate late in the game. He swings through both of them. They're both clearly balls. Pitcher goes back, of course, to another slider. Hangs this one just a little bit, leaves it a little bit on the plate. Robert gets a base hit out of it. If you throw a good slider there, he probably swings at it again. So, my whole point with all of this is that if you're going to be super uber aggressive, it's hard to put two of those guys at the top of the lineup. There's going to be the good and the bad that comes from putting Luis Robert there. Hopefully, there's more good than bad. If there is, no issues from me. But him using right field, him working counts, him laying off tough sliders, he was doing that in San Francisco and Pittsburgh. You still saw those points where he he reverts back and he doesn't have those strong at-bats, but you saw a lot more good at-bats in San Francisco or against San Francisco against San Francisco and in Houston or in Pittsburgh. Because of that, it's fine to leave him at the top of the lineup in those cases. My whole point is that if you're just going to be this free-swinging machine that just relies on pure power, it's not going to operate well in the long term. That was my only point. I still don't think he's disproven me. Maybe it was premature to say seventh. But I, I'm still not on board with one and two being Anderson and Robert. I, a hot week doesn't change that for me. I need a hot month, a hot two months, and a true change in approach. That's all I'm saying. Okay, well, you know, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I'm still not totally on board with the seventh. Um, I, I feel like uh, I feel like our producers did a great job showing my reaction on that clip. Um, got quite a few comments about yeah. that in itself. Um, and, again, I, and, and, and it's will, but it's not. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I will say again, seventh may have been premature. I just don't necessarily agree with the idea of putting him second. Yeah, at, at I the top of the like. And I understand, like, I understand your, ju- like, just play devil's advocate here. Like, I understand your justification for wanting to move him out of that spot, um, especially with a leadoff hitter who's aggressive, is as aggressive as Tim Anderson. 
Um, my my only thought is is just like I I like you know maybe I'm kind of the rare occurrence to this. Maybe this is going to be something that's clipped that makes me look bad. But like I really like Andrew Benintendi in the three hole just of just because of his ability to hit to the gaps. Like I, I I'm I'm already kind of hitting that whole uh, Benny in the slab setup because I think it's just perfect. Like I really do think it is um, because he he you know slap hitters they they're considered bad or they're undervalued but like when you have two fast guys on base and you can hit to the gap you could potentially get one of those guys in and i think that's a really good setup for offense and i think that's why Grafol kind of has that set up the way he is obviously it's Luis robert that's a lot of power at the at the two hole you know and i understand that argument as well and you know i wouldn't mind seeing yo mancada sneak there sometimes as well because i think uh with the way he's been hitting and the fact that he can be a switch hitter, um, that definitely is a benefit to having that two hole, but you know, kind of sandwich between two guys like that. But um, I, I just, I think getting Luis Robert with the way he's playing right now, the absolute most at bats, I think is until we see otherwise, I think is the best it's to your point to, until we see otherwise, I think with the way Luis is playing right now, I think we have to get him as many at bats as possible. And I think that's a lot of what Griffal is trying to do. Um, now if he continue, like if those strikeout numbers continue to go up, if he continues swinging at bad sliders, yeah, you know, absolutely. Then that's a situation where you have to hold him accountable. You know, I mean, obviously we've already seen Grendahl just from the beginning of the year before he swung a bat the first time of the season being put accountable because of how low he was in the lineup. But like, if he's going to continue to hit like this and, uh, we, we start seeing a little bit better of an approach, like we're moving in the right direction. I'm totally fine with him staying in second. Um, not that you're wrong, though. Trust me, Luis Robert swinging at low sliders drives me absolutely, absolutely insane. I, mean, I was going to say something a lot more, a lot worse than that, but I, it drives me crazy too. But he, his upside is just nuts, and, and I think that's why the fall is going the way he is. And I think you just made my point. Like as long as he's doing this, it's fine to leave him there. My my only thing is to your point, and more of a devil's advocate point why is, I mean, Yohan Moncada is just as hot and maybe he's cooled off a little bit to, to play devil's advocate. Why not try and get him as many at bats as possible? Move him. I think we've tried to start to do that at four, but why not put him at two? I, I think that's why. And I think if you put together all of the lineups that we've all put together, like we put together last week, I think Nick's comes the closest to kind of like what, what it would look like in an ideal sense. Cause Moncada is hot, but also, he puts together those good at bats, even when he's struggling. I think that's kind of the most important thing there. So, yeah, for sure. I think that I like the theory of what Duke was saying, where you know, and one or both of Anderson and Robert get on, and then Benintendi hits into a gap. I would like to see that happen, just because I mean, not mm-hmm. to rail guy too much, but not been not not been impressed by Benintendi and all the ground ball after ground ball, and even the defense, like his routes on sinking line drives like every time i'm like oh god he's gonna drop this routine catch and he, he's catching them but like i don't know what it is about the route just something is just making me uneasy that he's just having trouble picking up the ball but before we move on to pitching one person i also want to bring up i know duke wants to talk about him too is, is oscar colas because not only did he hit his first home run since we last spoke but just overall i think his at bats have looked really good he's you can, you can see it like in the first week compared to now he's getting a lot better at laying off of the pitches that pitchers want him to swing at especially when it comes to, you know, sliders at his feet or the high fastball. Like, sure, he's a rookie. He'll still have the occasional swing and miss, but it's not nearly as bad as it was at the beginning, and he's starting to flash his power. That's actually why I was so upset on um, 
Sunday's game when he sack bunted in the seventh inning because, or maybe it was the eighth inning. It was late in the game because a the Sox were down by one run. So I mean, if you're playing for one run there, you're just going to tie the game and you don't have all your best relievers available anyway. So why are you playing for one? But also, I wanted to see Koala swing the bat. I mean, you had. I think it was Sebi Zavala, and it, it was probably like Romy Gonzalez or another bench player after that. Like I want Oscar to be the guy to try to drive the run in. You know, he, he has gap power at worst, and obviously we saw him hit a home run in that ballpark. So it might have been his own decision, you know, be, being a rookie and wanting to be a good teammate. I don't know if it was um, Griffel. I don't think anyone in the media asked him, or at least I haven't seen uh, anything about that. But it was just something that I was a little disappointed by because I Oscar's hitting really well. I mean, even today against the the twins is that bats look pretty good. He has hit a couple of deep line drives again. And I like, I'd like to see him maybe even bat higher in the lineup. I know he's usually eighth, ninth, but some of these lineups when core players are out, I'm, I think it's time. Like if you want to bat him even sixth, like go for it. He's, he's hitting well. I think he's earned it. No, I, I 100% agree, especially with the idea of bringing him up a little bit more in the lineup, um, especially against righties. If he's hitting, why not, why not try to kind of build off that? Um, you know, I said this a little bit in the pre-show before, uh, just talking with you guys about it, but, uh, Oscar Colas genuinely looks like somebody who's been in the major league, been in major league baseball for a while. The only thing I have against him, and it's just, it's funny because we were just talking about Luis Robert with the sliders is low sliders at his, at his, at his knees going towards him. It's pretty, you know, it's tough. It's a very hard pitch to hit in baseball anyway, especially when you're kind of getting used to how major league pitchers are starting to utilize the slider. You know, you can make an argument that the slider is one of the most, if not the most popular pitch in major league baseball. Um, you know, pitchers have really kind of made a conscious effort to really try to perfect it. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of been the number one struggle for him. But besides that, like he just looks like a, a, a seasoned vet in the, in the batter's box. And that's what he looked like all throughout the minors. And, um, you know, not to dismay against the Gavin sheet, you know, the Gavin sheets boys out there, but like, I have a hard time justifying Gavin Sheets batting over like higher than Oscar Colas in a lineup for me personally, just because I see a lot more intangibles in what Oscar Colas is doing. Um, he can hit it anywhere in the ballpark. He's not just strictly a pole hitter or anything like that. Whereas Gavin, like if he's not hitting a bomb or he's not hitting like, op, like a random op, like Opo hit or something like that, that the team isn't expecting, it's either going to be a fly out or a strikeout. And that's, that's starting to become a little bit more, annoying and it's even worse when he's act, you know doing his best bill buckner impression at first base but that's an entirely different issue altogether but no i agree with you 100 percent. i think oscar colas is quickly earning um the praise he was getting before the season started and um seeing his approach already improve from that houston series to now is is showing that he's a very coachable and b very understanding of what his issues are I will say one thing that there, there was an article early in the offseason, I believe, by James Fegan, um, where he went and basically said, you know, Colas is, is working with Gonzalez and they're kind of learning, you know, if the slider starts at the, at the knees, like it's probably going to break out the zone. So don't swing at it. So seeing him start to self-correct that kind of as both of you alluded to, while also still experiencing some of those rookie pains. Um, is important, and I think you know you're going to see month, month and a half as he continues to develop. I think it'll be kind of exciting um, to see that happen for him. I will say, be careful how far you want to move him up in the lineup. That means you got to move someone down, and God forbid you move someone too far down, you're getting in trouble on Twitter. It's it's time for someone else to get uh, called a nerd who's never watched baseball or something <laughs> or some those long lines, some whatever. Someone I, else's I, problem now, not mine. 
<laughs> I just want to say I'm glad I muted you a long time ago, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I love so I've seen those types of things where it's like I'm glad I muted you, or I'm glad something about not following me. I'm like, I don't care. I <laughs> I have this opinion. You're free to disagree. You're free to clown me after a week of good at bats from Robert. Go right ahead. If it makes you happy, go ahead. Guess what? I'll still be here next Tuesday, gracing your airwaves. <laughs> that's that's the only way to be, man. That's the only way to be. And, you know, I, I've, I've, de- I've dealt with similar stuff in the past. Nick, I'm sure you've dealt with it as well. Every, everybody, you know, um, what, like the con- Concourse Beggar's Pizza on Twitter, you know, that, that guy. Those types of accounts will always let you know just how horrible of a person you are in and out for saying Luis Roberts should bat seventh, but... Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a whole different conversation. Um, so now we've talked about a lot of the positives, and obviously the offense as a whole is a positive. You know, there's just there's no way around that. And even to your point about uh, being careful about where you want guys to go in the lineup, like we got a really good problem to have right now. Everybody's hitting. So, like, to a point you almost don't want to mess with it because the whole line. Well, besides Elvis Andrews, but that, again, that's a conversation that we've had before that really hasn't changed since. Unfortunately, Elvis has just been having a tough go of it, both offensively and defensively. But regardless, the offense as a whole is is hitting the ball, and it's making it's making everybody very very excited for a team that could potentially really just become the Bridgeport Bombers again. And that's I think something we've all been waiting for, especially after getting singled to death the past two years. On the flip side. It's been a rough week for the starting pitching staff that's not named Dylan Cease. Like, let's be real. Mike Clevenger might get out of it a little bit because he had two pretty solid starts, but even then they weren't stellar. You know, they weren't anything that you uh, are writing home about. What are you guys feeling? Um, Nick, I'll let you go ahead and start with this one. How are you guys feeling about the starting rotation? Is this something that we should genuinely be really worried about? Is this something where... This is, we're just trying to get the kinks out. Like, we're giving up home runs at an absurd rate. We're giving up hits at an absurd rate. The defense isn't helping, but the pitching certainly isn't helping their case either, especially when they should know that the defense isn't playing fantastic. Nick, how are you feeling about the White Sox starting rotation right now? Yeah, so my my opinion, as you might expect, is that since it's so early, I think it's probably most wise to default to whatever projections you had before the season rather than like overreact too much to what's happened so far which means that it's been a really, really bad stretch. But at the same time, I don't think it's indicative of some crazy trend where we're going to have the worst starting pitching in baseball. Like I think it's just a really bad coincidence that this stretch is happening right now. That being said, there are still some very real concerns that you know are valid for pretty much every starting pitcher on the staff other than Dylan Cease. Um, and, and you know, of course, Clevenger's looked pretty good, but like you said, Duke, especially the last outing in Pittsburgh, he was kind of walking on a on a tightrope at times getting getting out of trouble um as for the other three i think given that he looked a lot better in pittsburgh it's pretty clear that michael kopech was indeed tipping pitches against the giants which which makes sense because especially early on in that outing he actually looked really good i love the way his changeup looked and um then of course it all fell apart so good to see him bounce back already uh, and then as for giolito and lynn those are two increasingly polarizing players honestly in terms of the discussion that i'm seeing just because lynn Obviously, he's been very good in his White Sox career, but fastball-reliant pitchers, when they lose speed on their fastball, predictably, they don't pitch as well. And because he's getting older, 
I understand why after two starts, even though, you know, he said he was under the weather, the, the most recent start. I understand why people might think that it's the beginning of the end. That said, he's not going to be, you know, like a seven ERA pitcher or what. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even look at his numbers as early because they're meaningless. But like wor- worst case, I think Lance Lynn is going to be like a competent number four this year. Like he might not be an ace, but even if he loses speed on the fastball, he has improved off speed stuff that he started showing last year and that'll help him. As for Giolito, maybe I'll leave that one for Jordan because I have no idea what to make of him this year. I keep seeing stat after stat showing how his stuff is way better, his fastball is way better, his changeup is back to its like 2019 to 21 shape, yet the results aren't there. So I've, I don't know what to make of him. Let me start with this question. I'm actually very curious about how you would answer this. Um, if you had to, if you were to say just split quick decision, worry more about Leonard Giolito, who would you worry more about for this season? That's a good one. I'd, I'd probably go Lynn purely because of age and because, like I said in the past couple episodes, I think Giolito with the contract year and with just knowing his work, I think in general, I think chances are he'll at least be serviceable this year. But Lynn, I think just the red flag being age, it's hard to hard to say that I'm less worried with him, if that makes sense. Duke? So when it comes to both Lynn and Giolito, see, I'm, I, I, I kind of like being a problem solver. I kind of have an idea of what their issues are, both of their issues are, especially Lucas right now. Um, I think it's something that can definitely be fixed. Um, I guess I would have, I would have to say I'm a little bit more, more worried about Lance just because he's been having a difficult time changing up his speeds with his different fastballs. Um, he hasn't been mixing up as much as I would like to see. Um, that's something I feel like he's going to start getting going a little bit more. And I, I want to see that occasional have Steve stone jump out of his seat, Lance Lynn curveball every once in a while that I just haven't been seeing yet either. Uh, because you know, it's just that kind of thing to keep everybody off, off their, uh, you know, off kilter. But I, I would say Lance just because, you know, like, like Nick said, age, I think that plays into it. Um, Lance has not been the same since he got injured last year. Um, whereas Lucas, I don't think it's something, I don't think it's anything physical with him. I think he's just genuinely missing his spots and it's having, it's making it harder for him to set up what he wants to actually do. And he gets to points where I don't think he knows what to pitch and that's where he runs into issues. I genuinely did not think that was going to be unanimous for Lynn because I agree. It's Lynn. You look at each of the guys, you go real quick one by one. My, my answer is also Lynn on that one. Lynn so far, it looks like both the fastball, or excuse me, the velo and the movement on his fastball and cutter are both down. When, when the movement's down, that's when I get a little bit more concerned. Giolito's getting so much praise from metrics um, because his fastball is similar now to the fastball velo of years past. It's back up on average over 93. I mean, a lot of people are talking about like, oh, if he's not hitting 96, 97, I would... He averaged a 94-2 in 2019, 94 in 2020, 93-8 in 2021, 2022 was 92-6, now it's back at 93-2. That's more trending towards career norms. That's why it's like, everyone's like, he needs this 96-97. I don't know what they're talking about. Like, he's never, like, he'll go there once or twice with it, but on average, he's never been, at his best, a hard thrower. Um... So when you look at his pitch, it's like, yes, so the velo is getting back closer. The movement in terms of vertical break, you know, how much it rises, quote unquote, or doesn't drop, essentially. 
it looks more like his 2018, 2019, or excuse me, 2019, 2020, 2021 fastball. That's encouraging. Changeups moved the best it's ever has, um, horizontally at least, and the slider looks good too. The stuff looks good. Duke, to your point, it might just come back to command. The only thing is that fastball spin still isn't in there. So we knew he's probably a sticky stuff um, victim. I think that's still fair to say. It's about getting it back to that more natural number of maybe 2,200, 2,250 RPMs. He's still a little bit below that. That's my biggest concern there. Clevenger looks like the fastball slider guy he was before. Kopech, the slider remains my concern. Getting more horizontal movement on it versus just being purely vertical. I think if he's going to throw it at the speed he does, it needs to be more horizontal. If he throws a little bit harder, like Sista, you can get away with that vertical break being the main thing. And sees there's not much to say so far. Um, he'll get the hate for five innings today. Watch a ball game before you watch a box score. Um, other than that, I think that that's why I was very surprised we all agreed on Lynn versus Giolito. Giolito, it does feel Duke like you're saying that there's still an aspect of it that it needs to be better placed, like it was before. Where if you're not going to reach back for more than 95, 96 just once in a while, that that's how you end up getting it. Well, and I to really kind of hone in the issue because I didn't I didn't totally explain what it what it was with Gilito. In my opinion, it is definitely command of the fastball, but with that, and I thought Steve Stone made an incredible point about it. You know, and Steve knows pitching. I like nobody can ever take that away from him. Um, when you're not able to really locate that fastball and pitch, and hitters are going to start expecting you to stop throwing it, they're going to start sitting on that changeup because they know that's the pitch he can control in his sleep. And that's, that's really where he gets gashed when he can't control his fastball and guys aren't biting at it. He will start going to that change up heavy and batters will start sitting on it. And that's when shit's getting hit over the wall. Like that's, that's as, that's as simple as it is. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's an easy fix. You know, that's well, control is never an easy fix per se, but once he's able to control that fastball, everything else will come into place. And even with the Michael Kopech point, um, I do see a trend with him going to that slider a little bit more often than he did last year. And I think that's something that's very positive. His changeup when he goes to, it looks absolutely disgusting. And I really think that's something that he needs to continue to, to mess around with. The control's not necessarily there yet, but that movement. Oh my, oh my goodness. Just a, just a gross changeup. It's almost a, it's almost like a variation of his curveball, just with the way it freaking drops. I see you um, drooling over there over this changeup. My <laughs> God, Duke. I, I am. I, hey, you get, you get worked up. You get worked up by your boy Lucas Giolito, which by the way, you brought up sticky stuff, man. He might find you in the parking lot for that. But um, <laughs> I, I am a guy who can definitely admit I've. I am a huge fan of Michael Kopech. Seeing him pitch against Pittsburgh was the Michael Kopech I expected. Um, showing good high velocity in his fastball, showing good command. Got in a little bit of trouble here and there, but he worked himself out of it. That one run is very hard for me to put on him, especially with the way the ball was played. But, um, you know, that's that's just kind of one of those things. Of course, that would be the day that we don't score any freaking runs would be the Michael Kopech redemption start. But, you know, we're never, it's neither here or there. But, you know, regardless... With Michael Kopech, we have to also address the elephant in the room there with him tipping pitches in his first start. That's something that's obviously going to get worked out. Hopefully that's something that he's making more of a conscious effort to. Didn't seem like he was tipping against Pittsburgh. Um, I don't think I've ever watched his hand in his glove more in my life, personally, especially with after watching highlights of that first game and being 
kind of having an inkling that maybe he was, but John Boy really did a great breakdown to show us all that, yes, he absolutely was. Um, but, yeah, no, I uh, overall, I'm not worried about the starting rotation. You know, and I, I, think, I think any issues we're seeing, there's fixes, and that's always the positive of it. It's not a situation where we're looking at, like, John Danks when he was towards the end of his career where it's like, I don't know what this guy could do to possibly – redeem himself at this point like it's it's just not there anymore and i don't see that out of any of these guys even lance he can get crafty he's always been crafty even if the velo goes down as long as he changes speeds he can make it work lucas like i said it's control clevenger honestly i don't really i wouldn't mess with much that clevenger's doing i want him to kind of keep rolling with what he's doing and just kind of uh get his confidence going um and honestly if you get what you get out of clevenger every fifth start as long as we're scoring runs it's not the worst thing in the world for a five starter and uh, Dylan Cease is Dylan Cease, and anybody who thinks Dylan Cease isn't Dylan Cease is, uh, I don't know, I think you deserve to get roasted on Twitter. But anyway, um, yeah, so yeah, I'm not too worried. And, and I think the the obvious question then is, you know, when do you start to worry? My answer is probably late April. If, if this really hasn't turned around by late April, the Sox are already out of it anyway. So that really doesn't matter. I think the one other thing, a uh, very good point you brought up, Duke, about not in regards to Giolito, not moving away from a pitch. That's why Dylan Cease was able to keep the game under control against San Francisco, where he clearly didn't have a slider or a curveball, but he kept throwing it. Like, until you just keep throwing it, and maybe they mentally turn off the idea of swinging at that pitch at all, then you break off the good one that stays in the zone, and then you get a free strike or a free out out of it not moving away from certain pitches. And it goes along with Kopech, too, when he was tipping. Um, Ethan Katz goes out. They clearly say, hey, they got our signs, or you're tipping. We don't know, but it's clearly on your off speed or your curveball, rather. So just stick with fastballs. The next hitter figured that out really quickly after three, four fastballs, then hit one out of the park. Like, you can't rule out certain pitches, even if you think they got it, or you don't think you've got your best stuff that day. As soon as you do that... You turn from a one or a two pitch pitcher to a one pitch pitcher or a three pitch pitcher to a two pitch pitcher, and you make it so much easier for hitters. Um, I think that's really really good point on your part, Duke. Yeah, you always just got to keep them on their toes at the very least, and that's that's what I liked about season that start. Um, one thing that would have been perfect had we recorded this episode like on Friday or Saturday is there was a time when I was checking on Fangraphs and the White Sox has a full team had the highest batting average on balls in play in BABIP in baseball on offense and as on pitching, meaning that the offense, I mean, again, I don't love BABIP for an individual metric, but as a team, if you're number one in baseball in both counts, it probably means that your offense is going to get a little worse and your pitching is going to get a little better. And we recorded this episode today and we've had back-to-back games where the pitching has been a lot better and the offense has been, it has been terrible. I mean, that they won today, but it hasn't been scoring the way it has or collecting hits the way it has either. So we're already seeing some stuff start to normalize. And that's why I said at the outset of this segment, like, yeah, it's not fun to watch the White Sox pitchers get absolutely destroyed on a daily basis, but it was also never going to sustain. It's, it's nice to see that it's already starting to converge toward the norms. Now, now, hopefully, you know, you can't just rely on that. You need improvement from pretty much everyone, again, aside from Cease. But I'm confident that, it's like on paper, still a very good rotation when healthy. And if they stay healthy, which honestly for the starting pitching, they actually don't have as high of injury concern. I think as the rest of the team, 
So if they can't stay healthy, I'm confident they're at least like a middle of the pack rotation. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a lot of reaction to 10 games worth of samples. Numbers jump up and down drastically each day. Um, I know fans hate when you're like, oh, it's only April. It's only the first 10 games. But it's like when you're looking at statistical like highs and lows and, and just you, you have to wait for that stuff to normalize just from a pure mathematical standpoint. You have to wait until the extremes are kind of evened out. And to Nick's point, that's exactly what we started to see the past couple games. It's too early to start worrying, especially when you're talking about extreme numbers. Yeah, you know, it's not like we're dealing with, like, a Dallas Keuchel in the rotation right now, just an absolute stinker who has looked bad, bad for a while. It's, all right, these guys got stuff they're working out of. Um, You know, I I think people forget that Dylan Cease in his first spring start looked absolutely awful, and he's just looked great since. Michael Kopech looked great in his first start as well in the spring. So, like, these are just things that they're just kind of getting that consistency down, you know, and it's not something I'm necessarily worried about. But, um... As far as, and kind of moving into our next point of teams we should be worried about besides ourselves, you know, we were talking about everything we should be happy about with the White Sox, everything we should be worried about with the White Sox. We should probably, probably talk about who we're worried about in the AL Central because while we're sitting third, obviously, as we've discussed, the White Sox being five and six certainly isn't the end of the world, especially with us just absolutely hammering baseballs as it is right now. Um, you know, and we just we just played the Twins on Monday and uh, squeaked out the first one of the series. Hopefully, that ends up uh, playing out the same way throughout the course of that series. Um, but I will let Jordan actually start with this point. Um, who are you worried about in the AL Central as far as uh, really competing with us all the way throughout the season? Guardians. Simple answer. I, I think when you talk about the Twins, or excuse me, you talk about like extremes normalizing. The Twins have been extremely good on pitching unsustainably good kind of the same way the Sox have been unsustainably bad it'll all even out of course pitchers make improvements I'm not saying that the twins haven't made improvements I'm saying the drastic levels to which they're at right now are unsustainable I don't think the offense is overwhelming Cleveland just drives me nuts and even as they continue to lose starting pitcher after starting pitcher after starting pitcher I don't want to see them with a season series with a divisional playoff on the line. Um, that That is a frustrating team to play baseball against because it's a brand of baseball that is hard to defend against. It's very lucky, but at the same time, it's very hard to defend and play and um, game plan against. And that's why I will always answer that question. As long as they're competing, as always going to be the Guardians for me. Yeah, it's interesting because I like that you mentioned that they're losing. They obviously lost Tristan McKenzie and now Aaron Savali as well recently hit the injured list. So at least you acknowledge that because I'm going with the Twins and part of my reasoning is because the Guardians rotation is getting injured. And and frankly, they're the kind of team where they if they lose a position player, they actually have a, a lot of top 100 prospects that are position players. But their pitching depth, at least from what I understand, is not as great, um, at least not in the immediate like you know, AAA um wings so i'm concerned about them and i hate playing them they're frustrating yes but this year i'm more afraid of minnesota still just because i while i agree that their pitching has been unsustainably good it's still a good staff and like i said in in a recent episode just because it's a bunch of number two starters doesn't mean it's a bad staff like for the regular season that's really good it just means they may not make a deep playoff run so i think that they're a team actually that's built to do really well in the regular season and, and not really well in the playoffs 
especially given the injury concerns with Byron Buxton and, and Carlos Correa. But overall, I'm going to stick with them. This Twins team that we're seeing this week is not the real Twins team. I mean, that lineup is just absolutely decimated even compared to ours. So once they get their full lineup back, assuming when they do, that's a team that I um, am more afraid of just because I think they're primed to hit for a lot of power. And that's something that the White Sox have struggled uh, with so far as a pitching staff. Yeah, you don't worry about the Guardians pitching staff until they pull a random bagger from the local grocery store and turn him into Cy Young. So you don't worry until that happens. But I get the point. It's a fair point. I think it's fair to look at the Twins and be like, oh, yeah, that's a better squad than I think I give them credit for at the same time. It's very easy to say that as well. So I I guess guess my opinion on the Twins over the last three years is just really – and this isn't me divulging too deep into maybe what they actually produce once they're on the field, but just looking at it from a GM mindset, I don't quite know what the hell the Minnesota Twins are doing um, with the way they're building their roster. Um, it feels like at certain points they're trying to get young, and then they bring an old old aging players, and then when it feels like they're trying to compete, they end up moving those aging players and try to go young again. It's like it's just been back and forth, and I don't quite understand what they're trying to do. Um, and then when you add on the fact that a guy like Byron Buxton has not played in the field at all yet this season and is looking like he might be the DH, that's alarming. Um, that's like Joe Maurer levels of alarming if I'm a Minnesota fan. Um, also, you know, and this is completely unnoted, but their uniforms look awful in my opinion. I think they look like the freaking Minnesota Orioles, which is just hilarious to me um, because I thought they had a pretty good uniform set up back uh, before. But I just I don't have it in me to really buy into what the Twins are doing. Um, I don't think they have the firepower in the lineup compared to a team like uh, the Guardians. Like, let let me just let me just say some names here because this is the Guardians lineup today with their starting pitcher, Quan Rosario Ramirez, Naylor Jimenez, Bell. That part of the lineup right there is horrifying. I don't care what pitcher I have on the mound. I don't care if I have Dylan Cease on an absolute heater. That part of the lineup is horrifying. And I just don't see that with the Minnesota Twins. And, you know, they, you know, say what you say, what you say about Tristan McKenzie getting injured. Once he gets back, I think he's going to really kind of pick up where he left off. He's not someone who necessarily uh, focuses too much on velocity as much as he really does his pitches. And you have a guy like Shane Bieber who just is, just can be flat out dominant at times, you know. And... I mean, I will give the Twins this. They do have some fireballers in their bullpen, and I think that's why you really need to get to their starting pitching so you don't have to deal with their high-leverage guys. But um, I do think just as far as a team that can keep up with you offensively, Cleveland Cleveland scares the crap out of me. You know, And I think that's the team that I'm, I'm really, as far as a 162 season goes, not basing it on really anything they've done, so either team has done so far. It's got to be Cleveland for me. It's, it's got to be. Um. But yeah, no, I thought uh, I thought you guys both made really good points. Honestly, Nick, you kind of made me a little bit scared about the Twins there for a second. If we hadn't just beaten them today, I would be in a, been a little nervous <laughs> heading into the series. But I don't know. I think Buxton not playing in the field right now is alarming as hell. Like, he's been having so many injury, uh, injury history in the past anyway. And um, oh, who's that guy they just got from New York? Um, or not, not New York, uh, L.A.? The guy we were going to sign the big oh Gallo, oh Gallo, yeah Gallo, yeah. That's a guy that doesn't really instill a lot of fear in me either because that guy can't even hit for an average. Like, sure, maybe he'll walk and maybe he'll get you know hit the occasional bomb, but man, he just has looked like an absolute shell ever since we've uh, 
ever since he's left the Rangers. And I just always get a kick about the fact that Michael Kopech was uh, starred around the trade package for us to potentially get him back in the day from that uh, horrendous Twitter account. But anyway, uh, I feel like this is a good point for us to wrap up because I'm talking about Twitter beef and we've talked about more than enough Twitter beef at this point in the episode. But, um, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have this week for the Socks on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to be sure to check out Socks on 35th at SocksOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SocksOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Julian Lazowski and Nick Gower. We will be back next week as we cover another exciting week of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox! Go Sox!